challenge is the opportunity because I don't think that most cannabis companies really nail branding. But again, that could be an opportunity because your competitors are burdened by those same challenges. So with some creativity, with some focus, with some discipline, with great advice, I think that it really is possible to have a competitive advantage in respect of building IP, which again will drive the valuation of cannabis company when prohibition ends. Welcome to the inaugural episode of How to Flourish in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brian Weber. How to Flourish in Cannabis is a bi-weekly educational focus show with proven leaders in regulated cannabis. I guess I have a wide range of industry experience, lawyers, accountants, brand producers, marketers, growers, tech leaders, and more. One thing all our guests have in common, is having a track record of success in this extremely challenging industry. Our guests are asked to give general educational knowledge in the subject matter that they're experts in. No pitches here. This is designed to be a masterclass in regulated cannabis. Many operators fail for lack of proper education and guidance in operating a capital-intensive business in a highly regulated industry. Out of Flourishing Cannabis is our effort to elevate and educate. Today's guest needs no introduction to anybody in regulated cannabis. Tom Zuber is a managing partner of Zuber Lawler, one of the world's leading cannabis law firms. Mr. Zuber personally manages relationships with more than 10 of the firm's fortune clients, as well as funds and government entities. He's also represented leading cannabis companies since 2006. Mr. Zuber is also founder of the international cannabis consultancy, Global Go, and the magazine, Global Cannabis Times. He has been named one of High Times' 100 most influential people in the cannabis industry and sits on various boards within the industry. He's also one of the nicest, most generous people you'll ever meet. Thanks for joining us for our inaugural show, Tom. Before we jump into the topic, can you share with us a background of why you wanted to focus on regulated cannabis? Hi, Brian. Great to see you as always. Now, Tom, if you're in regulated cannabis, you know who he is. But just for the few people that are watching that might not, Tom is the managing partner of Zuber Lawler, one of the world's leading cannabis law firms. Mr. Zuber personally manages relationships with more than 10 of the firm's fortune clients, as well as funds and government entities. He's also represented leading cannabis companies since 2006. Mr. Zuber is a founder of the international cannabis consultancy, Global Go, and the magazine, Global Cannabis Times. He has been named one of High Times' 100 most influential people in the cannabis industry and sits on various boards within the industry. And I might personally add, he's one of the nicest, most generous people you'll ever meet. Tom, thank you for being here. I do appreciate your time. Thanks, Brian. Joining us on the inaugural show, I've known you for a little bit, but our founder, Colton, has known you for a very long time. And I was really grateful when you agreed to be on the, the first show here. And, and also our subject leading into 2024, tapping growth opportunities in a challenging cannabis market. This is a very challenging time to be in our industry. And I feel like that is said every year. <laughs> and it probably will be said every year too. But before we jump into this, Tom, you're an exceptional person, even your education. I know you went to law school at Columbia, also a Harvard graduate. What drew you to be in regulated cannabis when you started Zuber Lawler? And then what was the mission there? What was the passion that brought you here? Well, first of all, I'll say everything's a gift from God, including my presence in the cannabis industry. And underneath that, I'll give credit to my buddy, Kenny Morrison, who some listening or many listening may know. He's the founder of Venice Cookie Company, now known also as VCC Brands, and the creator of Cannabis Quencher, which is one of the leading beverages in the nation. And Kenny, I've known since before he started VCC, since before I co-founded Zuba Lala with my brother. 
he called and said, I have a personal criminal defense attorney that's been helping me with the challenges that my company is facing. And the challenges back then, of course, had to do with the newness of it. And obviously, they were marijuana criminal defense attorneys, so to speak. This is 2003, right, when you started Zuber Lawler. So this is 20 years ago. This was 2006. I've known Kenny since well before then. I mean, quite a number of years before we started working together professionally. But Kenny started calling us and he said, listen, I love my lawyer and he's great at what he did, but he doesn't really do contracts and he doesn't really do capital raises and he doesn't really do those sorts of challenges. So he started calling us to help him out because we're a corporate firm. Kenny, I think, deserves much credit under God for getting us into this industry. So I don't mind giving him a shout out. And also, he's got an amazing product. So I encourage you all to check it out if you haven't, Cannabis Quencher. And that's really how it started. We became very popular very quickly because there were no corporate law firms, no modified corporate law firms in the space that I knew of anyway. And that remained the case for, it might have been five, seven years where we just didn't see anybody else around that was doing the work that we were doing in cannabis. So the phone kept ringing. And I have to say, it really was a blessing from God because I didn't go after the clients. My partners didn't go after the clients. They just called us as a function of being here in the industry, doing great corporate work and great litigation work and IP work and so forth. At some point, the notion hit us on the head and we realized that cannabis was as big as pharma. Someday, I think it will be. And so we steered the ship in that direction. We dove all in. And as you've noted, we've obviously made a lot of progress building uh, our clientele in cannabis and, and building notoriety in the space. And that's a credit to my partners and my colleagues. And so that's how we got into the space. And it's been a great ride. It's been a great ride. A very challenging ride. As challenging as this industry is right now, I think this industry sits every year better than it was the last, although it still feels like a long pull. But with new states legalizing Ohio recently, New York is finally potentially coming online, New Jersey there's constant movement in the right direction every year. It's just taking, I think, a lot longer than everyone wants and hopes, correct? <laughs> yeah, I'm a glass half full guy to be sure. Yeah. And there are enormous challenges here. And much of it is heartbreaking, right? Because you see companies that if they were doing what they're doing here in the cannabis industry in another state, in another industry, they'd be smashingly successful. But you have prohibition here, you have 280E, you have a thriving illicit market driving down prices, and it's really tough to watch. On the other hand, as I'm fond of saying, the challenge of cannabis is the opportunity of cannabis. And not everybody is able to navigate this terrain, and some folks are able to do it very, very well. That presents an opportunity. So what I mean by that is, just as one example, in cannabis, of course, if you're dealing with THC products, you can't put those in the back of a truck and ship it over state lines without obviously incurring some serious criminal liability and the focus of the U.S. government. So you're starting each operation de novo, state to state. And that's a heavy organizational lift, a heavy operational lift. Some folks have that skill set and some companies have retained that skill set and they're able to thrive in that market precisely because others haven't mastered that operational expertise. That's been a boon to some companies. The challenge is the opportunity. Correct. So the challenge is the opportunity, I think. The same thing that there are all kinds of regulatory hurdles in this space. It's really not one big complicated thing, in my view, as an attorney. It's really a thousand simple things. It's just the process of being organized and disciplined and focused and having the right people around you. And if you can nail all 1,000 simple things on that list, you've got a thriving business potentially. On the other hand, if you look at it, it's just this complicated mess. You're not going to get very far. So for me, I think that, again, the challenge is the opportunity. It is heartbreaking to watch all of the distressed circumstances out there and the distressed companies. On the other hand, being a glass half full guy, I would reiterate that notion. The challenge is the opportunity. 
And if you can navigate this terrain with better dexterity than others, then you can do very well here. And many of our clients aren't doing very well. I like that. That's a bonus tip for today. The challenge is the opportunity. Well, let's get to the topic today and let's get focusing on some of these. So the topic that we have is tapping growth opportunities in a challenging cannabis market. I think that was a great preamble to our, our conversation today. And we have five points that we want to cover. The first one, these are from Tom, but I want to intro these is own and enforce your cannabis brands. Tom, could you tell us a little bit more what you mean by that? Sure. Right now, we're in an era of prohibition, and I think there's a de-emphasis on IP and on brands and on technology, and I think it's artificial in a sense and certainly temporary. Once prohibition ends, I think the cannabis industry is going to look like other industries in those respects. In other words, it will be brands. It'll be IP that drives the valuation of companies. And so I think it's important to recognize that we're in a transient state of things. Whether or not President Biden follows through on his promises and representations relating to having some movement of cannabis down the the schedule of the CSA, it's going to happen at some point. Prohibition will end at some point, probably. And when it does, we're looking at a completely different circumstance. And so I think that it makes sense for companies that are really aiming big to aim for the post-prohibition, the end of prohibition. That means focusing on brand building. And that's what we try and encourage our companies to do when they have those larger ambitions. So what does that mean? That means you're not just trying to sell weed. And I think that there is still that mindset in many parts of the industry, because obviously the foundation of this industry is an illicit industry. The foundation of this state legalized industry is an illicit industry. And I think that those basic lessons that are taken for granted in other industries really haven't been absorbed fully in this industry. So I would say you want to focus on building a brand if you're aiming big in that way and to vet that brand, to protect that brand, and yes, to enforce that brand. That sounds so simple. And if I said this on a podcast for the pharmaceutical industry or for the financial industry or for any other industry, just about- It'd be like, duh, of course. It would be like, (laughs) duh. But in this industry, that it really is worth saying. So I would start with own and enforce your cannabis brands. That is one of the top things that I would focus on in identifying growth opportunities in challenging market. If I could, I would say, again, the challenge is the opportunity because I don't think that most cannabis companies really nail branding. And I think to really nail marketing and marketing is challenging in cannabis. But again, that can be an opportunity because your competitors are burdened by those same challenges. So with some creativity, with some focus, with some discipline, with great advice, I think that it really is possible to have a very fine competitive advantage in respect of building IP, which again, will drive the valuation of cannabis companies when prohibition ends. Now, we didn't do our normal legal disclaimer to start the show, but I know you're a lawyer, so none of this is legal advice. (laughs) Consult with your own attorney. But let me, for some practical advice on that. So as far as I know, patents and trademark are federal items and cannabis is federally illegal. Did people go the route of creating a brand and then selling clothing on that to get IP protection on that brand and then maybe extend that into cannabis as rules and regulations change on that? Is that a typical path forward for companies to protect and defend their brand? Well, Brian, that's a great question. I receive it often. And I'm going to go ahead and take a cue from you as we're sort of wading (laughs) into more specific territory now. This absolutely is not legal advice. And I do encourage you to speak to your own attorney. We're just having a conversation and conveying some information here. But there's no attorney-client privilege here and nothing is to be relied on. And you need to find your own high-quality attorney. Here's a couple of misconceptions that I can clarify. Regarding patents, there is no prohibition on, on obtaining a patent for illegal subject matter. So to be clear, Brian, if you have a process for making better cocaine, you could patent it. If you've otherwise got the makings of an invention and the right attorney, you'll succeed. 
that's a surprise to a lot of folks here. So we've had a lot of success obtaining patents in respect of cannabis subject matter. In fact, our law firm obtained the second ever issued in history, a United States plant patent for a cannabis strain. This goes back many years now. And we've done a lot of exciting, my colleagues have done a lot of exciting work since then. That's the first misconception. There is no prohibition against getting a patent for illegal subject matter, including federally illegal subject matter. And so it really makes sense to focus on protecting technology to the extent that you've got it, innovative technology. The second thing is in respect of trademarks, much tougher there. There is a prohibition against getting a, a federal trademark registration in respect of illicit subject matter. On the other hand, that's not the end of the conversation. And the federal trademark statute is very specific. If you have an attorney that really understands it, it is possible to get federal trademark allowances in respect of cannabis brands. Now, that's not saying in respect of the THC subject matter, but what you can do is you can file, for instance, it's possible to file intent to use applications with the federal government. The intent there has to be to put compliant goods into commerce at some point. That is a window that if you've got a talented set of advisors, you can actually engage the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office in a forthright manner, disclosing everything that your client is doing in relevant regards, meaning essentially saying to the federal government, our client sells drugs as far as you're concerned. I think it's medicine. But to illustrate the point, saying to Mr. or Mrs. Examiner at the U.S. Trademark Office, our clients sell drugs, one, and two, that's none of your business. This is an intent to use application. Here's what the federal statute says. Here's what our application says. We're disclosing, we're not hiding the ball at all, that our clients also sell THC products. But again, that's none of your business. And that's been a very effective conversation for us. It's a complicated conversation, but we're talking about brands here. So the investment is proportionally, I think, quite small in order to have some success in obtaining a, a pole position in respect of federal trademark registration. That is very enlightening. I appreciate your sharing that. Some of that is definitely news to me on this. So it's probably the reason why I love doing these shows as well. Our second point, and that was excellent. Thank you, Tom. Our second point is simple. Focus on your strengths. Let's talk about that. Yeah. One of the great things about cannabis that I absolutely love is that you find these entrepreneurs who would otherwise not be entrepreneurs, and they're excited about the notion of helping people, about bringing this medicine to people around their states or around the world even. And it's so inspiring to see all of this entrepreneurship facilitated and enabled in the context of this great cannabis conversation that we're going on about throughout the world now. At the same time, I think that excitement can sometimes be its own challenge. What I mean by that is discipline is the order of the day in many respects. So as an example, one example is expanding into new product lines. I've seen that so much. You'll have some initial success with a company, maybe raise some money, and that money just goes out the window very quickly because instead of focusing on the key product that got you to the point where you're able to raise money, uh, maybe expanding into one new product in a fiscally disciplined way, if there's capital there sufficient to support that new revenue stream, the, the development of it, instead of doing that, expanding into multiple new product lines at the same time and thereby running out of steam, having the challenges of 280E, federal prohibition, an illicit market that's driving down prices, increasing competition as a market develops. Again, I think discipline can be the order of the day. Focus on your strengths. The companies that I've seen do very well have really, really been careful uh, about incurring new operational costs, about expanding into new product lines. They do it, but they do it with a great deal of discipline and they don't do it too quickly. So that's one example of it. Another example I give when I say focus on your strengths is there are a number of, of ways to succeed in this cannabis industry. As an example, if you're a great operator and you've got that operational expertise or you're surrounded by it, then it makes sense to have assets potentially and to run those assets well, meaning cannabis licenses on physical production premises or distribution premises, manufacturing premises. And that makes a whole lot of sense. 
On the other hand, there's this notion that I think is a function of the illicit foundation of this state legalized industry that I'm selling drugs and I'm selling weed. And if I set up a shop, plant a flag, I'm going to make a lot of money. And I think that can be very harmful just in making the assumption that it's that easy. Because nobody ever really sold drugs, Tom. They just yeah. kind of sold themselves. I think that was a Chris Rock bit <laughs> that, at one point. Like, <laughs> hey, yeah, you know, drug. this is what it does for you. This is great. No one ever sold drugs. They just sell themselves. <laughs> that's, right. that's right, Brian. And so I, I think that's what I'm saying here, Brian, is that we're not selling drugs anymore. We're selling medicine. It's really important, I think, to understand that in a medicinal company, in a company that offers, I don't mean to say that recreational products aren't medicinal. I mean, the whole ball of wax here as far as cannabis, I think it's all medicine. We're running medicinal companies here. I don't mean to exclude recreational companies. Again, I'm using that in a very broad sense. And it needs to be run that way. That means that maybe the operational expertise isn't there. And if it's not there, you really need to retain it. And if you don't want to retain it or you can't, or it's not present in your state yet, you need to import it and hire it. If that's not possible, then you want to consider perhaps, for instance, an IP licensing situation here where maybe your gift is branding and marketing and there's something to be done there. And maybe it's quality control and it's just having great taste like a Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs, obviously, Apple has great operational capacity, too, under Tim Cook. But Steve was mostly a marketing guy, so he retained Tim Cook. But also, if he didn't have Tim Cook, he could have done a lot just by focusing on his strengths, which was branding, marketing and just having great taste. And being able to say, this is what I want, and I think my fellow consumers will want this as well, and having that iPod developed in a different fashion. So I think with cannabis companies, it's important to understand that operational expertise needs to be there. As an example, if it's not there, it needs to be retained. If it's not present in your state, you need to import it. If that's not an option that you want to consider a different model, which is perhaps an IP licensing model or something like that. So those are a couple examples of focusing on your strengths. But I think it is very important to exercise discipline. I guess what I mean by focus on your strengths, I think it's exercise discipline. Don't get too excited and expand into new product lines or into new markets too quickly. I like that. I like that. Yeah, both on your team and then also what you're doing with that team and when you execute with your company. So focus on your strength. I've seen and heard a number of stories on that. I'm sure you have as well. Thank you for that. It's a really good synopsis point right there. This is a very timely one, and I think will always be timely and probably a number of conversation elements on this one. But when you're opening up a new operation, choosing your markets well. Yeah. It is emerging markets here in the East Coast, and it is legacy markets on the West Coast, and every state's a different country. I think that's an apt statement, analogy. Every state is something like its own country in the cannabis conversation, and markets aren't created equally. And furthermore, some markets are further along than others, and furthermore, some markets are run better. Cannabis markets are run better than others. As an example, states like California, New York, I think have done a very poor job. And that's, I think, a widespread notion. So that's not a risque notion. Have done a very poor job in managing their cannabis industries. And cannabis companies there are really struggling. California's been around for a while. It's the largest cannabis market in the U.S. There's a great deal of money here, but very, very few companies are actually making profits. And most companies, even the largest companies in California, are highly distressed in, in many circumstances. New York is a newer market. But wow, it looks an awful lot like California in many respects in terms of the challenges that they have there. Never mind the 10-year head start yeah. looking at all the other states' examples. Let's, let's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that other states are run a bit better than that. So I think that you want to focus on states where you can make a profit. And maybe for some reason you're well-positioned in New York or you're well-positioned in California and you're going to have lower cost than your competitors. And despite 280E, despite 
driving illicit markets in, in each of those states. You're going to find your own pathway and you're going to succeed and play the long game and manage to squeak out a profit, a small profit in the meantime. That's fantastic. And I'm not saying don't do that. Not at all. Some companies are doing that, including some clients of ours. And that's great. It is the exception. I would say also there are other markets that you might want to consider. And some markets are run much better. Some markets have limited licenses. That could be a powerful thing if you happen to be the beneficiary of ownership of one of those limited licenses. So again, I would choose markets very careful. Some states, it's easier to make a profit than in other states. I think I would be very worried about entering into fully developed markets unless they're limited license markets, because what happens is as a market develops over time, obviously increasing competition comes into play. Ironically, the illicit markets can, can thrive even more, creating pricing pressures and so forth. Especially in higher tax states too. Especially in higher tax states like California, New York, correct. And that's a great note, Brian. You also want to look at the taxing structure there. It's very difficult in California to make a buck. It's heartbreaking to me because I have many friends that are really quite affected by that. It's really frustrating and sad to see. It's the state of things, though. So you do want to consider tax structure. You want to consider the number of licenses in a state. You want to consider the development of that state. If you're going into a brand new state, the competition there is obviously, the legal competition is obviously much less. If it's a limited license state, then the competition will be much less for a longer period of time. So to look at those sorts of things, I think it makes a lot of sense. Don't just start in a market because you happen to have been born there. Really think hard, is this the market for me? And then proceed from there. I think this kind of slides right very nicely into our next point here, leverage data and analytics. And this is a great way that you could figure that out. And probably a few other points on that one as well too, Tom. I think that it's like, Brian, we're entering new terrain every day. This is all new to us. There was no legalized cannabis conversation back in the 80s. So it's new to all of us, particularly when you're opening a new state market. So it's sort of like driving through that new territory that you've never seen before, having your eyes closed and a steel sheet over the windshield, and you just can't see what you're doing. You need data, and data is king. So I would say that you want to do your market research by incorporating data and finding out what consumer preferences are there, purchasing habits. Is that an underserved market? If so, what segments of that market are more underserved than others? You want competitor analysis always. You want to find out what your competitor's strategies are, their strengths, their weaknesses, to find gaps in the marketplace. And data analytics can help you do that. And another is you want technological tools that help you monitor your own performance. You want to analyze your sales. You want to analyze your customer feedback, the market trends, and those sorts of things to see how you're doing. So again, flying without data is, I think, really, really challenging. And I would analogize that to trying to drive a car with blinders on through a territory that you've never experienced before. And that's very difficult to do. And I think it's difficult to run a cannabis company without data. Yeah, not to self-plug on this one, but that's why what I love about Flourish working here, we have a lot of data on the operators that we work with. And there's no sponsored plug on this one, but I know for larger market trends, Headset is definitely an industry leader in, in providing that. There's a number of other services and firms that have a national market reach that you can be able to get information on what products, what's working well in different states and different markets as well. So is there anything to add to that one, Tom? You told me not to plug. I said I'd happy to do it, and I volunteered <laughs> for the audience's sake. But I, I think George is a great example of that, and I was instructed to not plug. But well, small plugs are fine. I'm happy to do it. I think Colton's a very smart, disciplined guy. I think he really knows what he's doing, and I think he's built a great company, and I think Flourish is one of the companies that you should look at for market data. Brian did not tell me to include the data point in this presentation. We want to keep this as general as possible. It just happened to come up on the timing things. I did tell you not to do a little plug there, but it seemed to fit and make sense. I love this last point, 
And I'm going to ask you in a non-specific way, like how to figure out and how to find this, because this is 44 and I've searched for this answer my whole life. So I'm going to ask one of the best I know how to find one, but hire great lawyers. So I would expect a lawyer to say that number one, but <laughs> I would love to hear why that is on the list in tapping growth opportunities in the cannabis market. Because I know it's more than just contracts and IP protection. There's a lot that goes into this. So if you could expand on that, Tom, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, this is obviously a self-serving comment, but it's also true. So that is what it is. But a defining distinction between companies that are successful in this regulatory challenged industry, the distressed industry and companies that are not. It's having great advisors, not just lawyers, accountants too, and consultants. But yes, having great lawyers, it really makes a huge difference. It sometimes it's this positive difference. You can certainly skimp on the quality of lawyers now, but you may pay for it later in the form of litigation or a botched exit. We've seen that happen. It doesn't make much sense to me in the sense that it's penny wise and pound foolish to not actually hire great attorneys now in the scheme of things that the cost really isn't that high. Zuba Lawler, our law firm, has won large litigation awards and settlements due to lack of high quality lawyers having drafted contracts on the other side of things before, obviously, we got involved in things. I really can't emphasize that point enough. We've also been by side counsel and you get in there and you look around and you're like, what is this? And this is a mess and that really affects things. And I obviously won't get too specific there, but what I will say is the best companies in the world have the best lawyers. There's a reason for that. I'm not saying that having great lawyers is everything. I'm saying that it's one of many components of a very successful company. And I'm saying it's even more important in the cannabis industry because of all the challenges here, because of prohibition, because of 280E, because of the stressed nature of things, because you can't put THC in the back of your truck and port it across state lines. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously anybody with a super lawler email address already been vetted by you guys very well. They're a great lawyer. But like to say, you're you know, an operator looking to start up a business in cannabis. How does one hire a great lawyer for this specific thing? And we're, we're definitely today talking about tapping growth opportunities in cannabis. So some specific examples. I think that you're really looking for three things, I think. One, you're looking for lawyers that are great at deals. You're looking for lawyers that have great track records in litigation or with intellectual property issues or regulatory issues or import-export issues or what have you. And that's in any sort of context, in any industry. Second, you're looking for folks that really understand cannabis, and that is essential. It really is not so helpful to have lawyers in some circumstances that can do their job otherwise exceedingly well, but just don't know cannabis. So as an example, I would say in an acquisition context, or if you're in an investor context, you're providing a debt, you're providing a capital infusion in terms of an equity investment, whatever those circumstances are, it makes sense to have lawyers that understand where the hair is on these assets, where the hair is on these opportunities. It makes sense to have lawyers that understand how to do due diligence here. We represent some of the leading financial institutions, for instance, in respect to cannabis and help them enter the industry. If you were to name the leading banks here, we, we, there's a good shot we represent them. The challenge there is this is not a typical loan. It's a loan to a cannabis company. And that's a very different thing. The due diligence is very different. The party you're dealing with on the other side, oftentimes the records aren't there. The documents aren't there. Understand, oftentimes their counsel don't understand what documents you're really looking for and what's supposed to be in those documents. So that's just one example. You really need to understand cannabis. And the third thing is you really want problem solving attorneys. We all know a lot of smart attorneys. I certainly do. And there's a difference between being a smart attorney and being a problem-solving attorney. Some attorney friends and I, Josh Lawler, for instance, and I often speak about this. He's fortunately for me socially, one of my best friends, but also he is a remarkable um, deal attorney. Once in a while, we'll talk about this and we sort of focus on this at our firm. We'll have attorneys that are great at issue spotting. And when you go to law school, 
oftentimes it's a very smart person that doesn't know what they want to do in life, meaning it's sort of indecisive to begin with, right? And so you're smart, you finish college, you graduated at the top of your class, you can get into Harvard or whatever law school or so forth. And so you go, but you don't really do it in a deliberate fashion. And that's the sort of mindset, I think, oftentimes, not all attorneys, of course, but that, that I think that that is prevalent. So those attorneys become great issue spotters. They're fantastic at it. They'll tell you five things you're doing wrong. But what you really want is a problem solver. You want somebody that's going to say, look, this is a risk-filled industry. Here's the risk. Here's what it looks like. And here's how to minimize it. Here's the path forward. Here's the solution. That is, is I think, essential in an industry like cannabis. So again, I'd find lawyers that really know their stuff inside or outside of cannabis in respect of doing deals, doing litigation, doing IP, doing regulatory work, import-export work, what have you. Second, you want to find folks, the attorneys that really, really, really know cannabis. And third, you want problem-solving attorneys. That is essential. You want attorneys that aren't just issue spotters, but will spot the issues and then present solutions and disclose the risk and tell you how to minimize it. Those are all really good points. And like any industry, the deeper you get in, the more nuance you know, but also the more connections that you have within the industry and how to be able to tap into growth opportunities in a very challenging cannabis market. Tom, I know we're a little over time, but it's always so much knowledge from you. And I really appreciate you sharing that today. How can our audience connect with you if they're interested in learning a little bit more about Zuber Lawler or you? Well, Brian, thank you for asking. I can be reached through our website, zuberlawler.com, Z-U-B-E-R-L-A-W-L-E-R.com, and through my email address, tzuber at zuberlawler.com. And Brian, it's great to see you. Tell Colton I said hello. I enjoy speaking with you gentlemen whenever I get the chance. Thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for joining us today, you know, for everyone on YouTube and the podcast. And Tom, it's always a pleasure, like I said. So if you got anything out of this today, be sure to subscribe, be sure to give a thumbs up on the YouTube buttons and any kind of comments on your podcast always help on this one, especially any suggestions for next guests you'd love to have on. And Tom, I do want to have you back on for another episode. Sometime in the future, we can give everyone a lesson on Schedule 3 and 280E and all the other fun terms in cannabis, but we'll have to save that for another time. But Tom, happy holidays. I'm glad we're starting 2024 with you on this episode and we'll talk to you soon, Tom. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you, my friend. Talk to you soon and thanks everybody for watching.